0: Lord Jesus, I thank you for the privilege to pray, uh, to come into your presence, and I'm just asking that what is shared this evening would make sense, that it could be done in the time allotted, and I pray that you would minister to each of our hearts today, and that we would better understand and anticipate the second coming of Christ, and also understand the privilege we have of the marriage covenant on earth. We ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. So what I'd like to share with you this evening is that in a general sense, as Seventh-day Adventists have generally done, when we communicate the message of the Second Coming, it's kind of important to us, right? It's actually built within the name. Seventh-day and then Adventists. People awaiting and anticipating the Second Coming of Jesus Christ. It's a big deal to us, right? Like we put it in the name. And many times when we communicate the beauty of the Second Coming... What we're really doing in our presentations largely is communicating what the second coming isn't. The second coming is not a secret rapture. The second coming is not this or not that. And while those statements are true, do we really need to focus on what it isn't at the expense of what it is? And this is kind of one of my burdens, because what I'm coming to find throughout my studies and some messages that have been helpful for me The entire narrative of Scripture regarding the second coming has something in mind that actually would be appealing to the human heart and is endearing. It's matrimonial language. In the Old and the New Testament, a lot of the language surrounding the topic of the second coming actually has a wedding in mind. Did you know that? Not just this, like, he's coming, look, like, you know, see the t-shirts. Jesus is coming, look busy. No, 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 no. There's something more important here than just a, he's coming to settle the accounts, and you better be good enough by then. No, no, no. The narrative that's being woven throughout Scripture is actually the narrative of a wedding. It's using marriage language. Jesus literally is coming again to claim his bride and to take her back with him to live with her forever this is actually the purpose of the second coming. And it's amazing really when you think about it, because Jesus, when he came to earth, literally was willing to suffer and to die for you as his bride. And if there's anything that guarantees that Jesus is coming a second time, it's what Jesus did the first time. Are you with me? And if he's willing to pay that high of a price for something, you better believe he's coming back to collect that thing, right? No one pays $10,000 for something or or $100,000 for something and leaves the thing in the store. No one would do that, right? I'm not going to pay that high a price and leave this thing to sit for someone else to take off with. No, 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 no. I'm coming back to get what I paid for. And that's the purpose of the second coming. He's coming back for you because he paid for you. You with me? He values you. And that's why he paid that price. So I'd like to look at some Bible texts that tell this story, but I need to do this with uh, purpose because I've got a few things I need to cover this evening. So Song of Solomon, whip out those iPhones, whip out your Bibles, whatever you got, that's fine with me, except for Android. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm only slightly kidding. Um, All right, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and beginning of verse 6. You know, whenever this was, whenever the canon of Scripture was being determined, the canon is like how they made a final decision of what should be in the Bible or what shouldn't be in the Bible, which happened way early, by the way, not way later. But anyway, when that happened, there was some debate about the Song of Solomon because it just seems strange. For one, the name of God isn't fully mentioned in, in an obvious way. It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around what, all of what's going on here. It is alluded to uh, in the original language, but there's just kind of this mystery, like it's hard to kind of find God in here for some folks. And like Martin Luther for instance thought that's that's ridiculous. Like this should not even be here. What on earth? Like there's this marriage language, this courtship language, even this like intimacy language. What is that doing there? Like why is that here was the question that some people had. Thankfully it's here because it's teaching an object lesson about God's pursuit of us. It's not this strange love story that came out of nowhere. This whole thing was meant to teach you something about the love of God for you and his pursuit of you. That's why it's here. So in Song of Solomon, chapter eight, let's begin in verse six. This is the Shulamite, the woman who's being pursued, speaking to her beloved Solomon. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Right, I want to be on your heart and on your mind, right? I want to be always in your thoughts. For love is strong as death and jealousy is cruel as the grave, and its flames are a flame of fire, a most vehement flame. And what's that got to do with the price of fish, right? I want to pick up the Andrew Study Bible's notes here on verse 6. Listen to this. A most vehement flame. It's best translated literally a flame of Yah, literally of Yahweh. This expression is reserved for the thematic climax of the entire song. This is the main point of this song, that this love, this jealous and cruel as the grave, that it won't give up, it's tenacious, and its flames are as the flames of fire, a most vehement flame, literally the very flame of Yahweh. Love in its perfectly ideal environment and at its zenith is meant to teach us something about the love of God for us. The very love that God has for you and for me, we're told. And so this song reveals that Yahweh is the source of human love and thus provides the basis for this whole thing. This verse is making the whole point that this pursuit, this courting, this wooing that's going on throughout the Song of Solomon is God showing us what his experience is like, that he's going through a process of pursuing and wooing and courting us, right? It's a type of that. But many of us, when we think of marriage, we think in the context of the marriages that we see around us. Or when we think of love, we contextualize the love of God to the love that we experience. And that's a problem. Because the love that we experience is weak. It's faulty. Many times it's selfish. We say, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I love so-and-so, but I don't really like them, right? Like we throw this word around and we lose sight of the fact that that when we think of love, when reading about the love of God in Scripture, we should be thinking of a perfectly selfless love, a love that is ideal. It's what love should be. And he's hoping that through the covenant of marriage, there's things that we learn about his love by learning to live selflessly, right? To give for the benefit of someone else. He's trying to teach us that lesson through here. But go to verse 10. It says, there's kind of unique language here. We'll go ahead and go to verse 8. Just go to verse 10 and skip down halfway through the verse. There's a lot of stuff I just don't have time to explain. But it says that, Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. When she finally chooses to surrender to give to this love, to give into this love, she finds peace. The interesting thing is she's referred to as the Shulamite. How many people have heard the word shalom? Shalom. You ever heard the word shalom? It means peace. She literally has the female version of peace. That's her name. Solomon's name is also the female, or the male version, not female, the male version of peace. And so peace and peace have come together. And the whole point is that when this pursuit is consummated, when this pursuit is allowed for, there's a sense of an abiding peace that God wants to be in the human experience. When love is experienced as he always intended, there's a great deal of peace that's meant to be brought into the heart of God of those pursuing this relationship. God's using this type of typology to awaken us to the fact that there's, you're actually being pursued, right? These things I'm telling you about in this allegory, in this poem, it's actually communicating how I feel about you. When when Solomon speaks to the Shulamite and pursues her and woos her, that's actually the way that I feel about you. And when she responds and reciprocates, God thinks, I wish you would respond that way. And he's trying to communicate to us that he's safe, that his pursuit is not something to be spurned or rejected. We see this language used again in Ezekiel chapter 16. So we're just kind of walking chronologically through some of this language. We could do it in different orders, but I just did it in the way they appear in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 16. Another lesson that's used here. Ezekiel chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 4. He uses an illustration of the children of Israel He says, "'As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you.'" In other languages, it says that no one loved you. "'To do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into an open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born.'" Just imagine someone being born, a precious, innocent child, and thrown in a field, not properly cared for. This is a school of medicine. You kind of care about proprieties, sanitary things, and all of that. No one does this. No one loves this child. This child is rejected. No one cares, and it's thrown in a field to die and be left alone. And God uses strong language here to communicate Our situation, this seeming hopelessness and being unloved and this loneliness and rejection. Verse 6, And when I passed by you and I saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, Live. And then I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew. You matured and you became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. Through the investment that he takes and and puts into you, even though no one loves us, we've been rejected and cast aside, he takes an interest in us. He's like walking by the road and he sees that you have a need. He sees that you're unloved. He sees that you're rejected, and he sees something of value in you, though no one else does. And he takes the time to nurture you, to invest in you, to love you when you were not loved by anyone else, and you grow. And we become very beautiful, right? This type of the church is what he's speaking to. And when I passed you by again after this investment, and I looked upon you, indeed, your time was a time of love. It was time for you to fall in love. So I spread my wing over you and I covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered in covenant with you and you became mine. God literally saw something of value in us when we were a mess, unloved and rejected and gave for us. And we grew and we matured. And when he realized that we had grown and matured and responded to his investment, he says it's time to fall in love. And many of us need to have this experience this evening. Our situation is very similar. We are unloved in the sense that no one can love us and fill us as God can. That sense of loneliness and rejection, we should sense that in an earthly sense because no one can fully give you what you need outside of God. And this is a lesson that some of us don't learn. My mother went through this. She was rejected by two mothers, and so she ran to physical relationships with men and seven marriages and divorces, trying to fill a hole in her life that could not be filled. Why? Because there was a a God-shaped void in her heart. She was looking for men to do for her what only God could do. And while there are beautiful lessons that can be learned in the context of marriage, those things cannot supersede the source. You with me? They can't supersede the main point. But God doesn't want us to remain in that condition of loneliness and rejection, and so he comes pursuing us. He sees something of value in us, even though we've been a mess and we've been dumped by the side of the road. God literally sees something of value in you. Yes, even you. With whatever your story has been, with whatever your rejection has been, he still sees this. And then God literally desires you to live and is willing to do whatever it takes for you to grow and to develop and to become the beautiful bride he longs for you to be. And when he sees that we've reached that point of maturation, that we've reached that point of readiness, he wants us to be clothed with his righteousness and he wants us to live and to become his, that we will become his. It's amazing to me, really. That God is willing to love us with a perfect, unselfish love. And the amazing thing is, God literally lavishes this love upon you, whether you respond or not. That's what agape love is. It's giving and giving and giving, whether you ever receive reciprocation. But I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if you've ever been in a situation of a relationship or potential relationship like that, it's hard. It hurts. You give, you give, you give, and get nothing in response. It's heartbreaking and it's devastating. That pain you feel is a drop in the bucket compared to what God feels. That does not mean that pain is not real. The point is God is very well acquainted with this pain. He understands that because He lavishes an agape love upon a people who many times do not respond. But that agape love does desire a response, amen? He is looking for this. He does want that. And it's amazing that he's willing to do it nonetheless. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 tells us that we love him because he first loved us. What literally awakens us to our need to fall in love, as what he mentions in Ezekiel 16, is first encountering the undeserved love that he gives us. One of the things that awakens someone to the fact that they could be loved, that they could be accepted, is when they receive it, when they feel that they deserve it the least. And this is the way that God treats you. This is the way that God treats me. And so in Ezekiel 16, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was a time of love. I saw that through my pursuit and care of you, you were ready to fall in love. It's time for you to fall in love. And many of us need that experience this evening. God, through His pursuit of us and recognizing there's a value He places on us, He's telling you and He's telling me, My daughter, my son, it's time for you to fall in love. For the first time, maybe for some of us, and for others, it's time for us to fall in love for the first time again. Maybe we lost our first love in our experience. We're actually going to talk about this tomorrow afternoon during Advent Hope uh, at 4 p.m. at Cutler. I'm actually going to tell, tell my story of... How God has been bringing me out of depression while in public ministry and realizing that it's actually possible to lose your first love. Happened to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, I believe. It happens to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Another illustration used in Scripture is in Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to summarize this one for time's sake. But These are really good things to study just to get a sense for how God actually feels about you and how He pursues you. In Hosea chapter 2, God married this bride. He lavished his love upon her and invites her to partake of his covenant. And that's us. And we spurned it and went to other lovers. But his response is so unexpected, right? If someone cheats on you, wants nothing to do with you, you would think the thought would be, good riddance, I'll find someone who does appreciate my love, who does appreciate my investment. But that's not the way that God responds. And some of us may feel so guilty because we've cheated on him and run to other lovers that we feel like, I, I mean, I can't come back. I mean, I've burned that bridge. That's not the way the book of Hosea reads, and it's amazing. So here's what happens. In response to the rejection and harlotry of our hearts, he says, Behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will speak love into her experience. Even though she's betrayed me, she's cheated on me and gone after other lovers, I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to woo her and speak love into her experience. This is literally the way that God the Father feels about you. When you run, when you cheat, when you steal, when you're doing everything but following God, He literally treats you the same exact way. He pursues you, He woos you, and He speaks love into your experience. And we feel so guilty, we feel so dirty that we want to reject that. And yet He keeps pursuing nonetheless. Then He says, "'And it shall be in that day,' says the Lord, "'that you will call me my husband.'" And no longer call me my master. When we encounter the amazing, undeserved love of God, it causes us to begin to have a paradigm shift. That no longer do we look at our experience with God as us just being groveling slaves, hoping to be good enough at the end of the day. We can actually look at Him as the love of our life that he actually, now there is a form of servitude mentioned in scripture that Paul alludes to in an endearing fashion, in the same way that you would be happy to serve your spouse because you love them and you know that they love you. And that's fine. But he's not wanting you to look at him as some taskmaster who's never satisfied, that nothing you do is good enough. He literally wants you to look at him as my husband. That when I think of him, my heart begins to race. That when I think of the love that he showed me when I was in a terrible condition, I just want to be with him. This is the way that God longs for us to view him, and as we encounter that undeserved love, that those thoughts can be awakened in the human heart and mind. It leads us to have a shift in how we view our standing with him, and that he see, when he sees that we're ready to fall in love, then the very next thing he does is in verse 19, he literally drops to one knee. And he says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God wants you to know him as he actually is, not as our shame, not as Satan would have for us to view him, that we'll never be good enough for him, that we're a waste of his time. Many times we project our unbelief in ourselves upon God. God looks at me in the way that I look at me, that I'm a mess. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to be accepted. Why? Because most of the people in my life have rejected me and treated me like trash. Why would God treat me any different? Right? Every context I have for love is pain. How could I possibly understand how God feels about me? Some of us wrestle with these feelings. I was counseling someone last week who was sexually abused by her father every night for three years, and she cannot understand the paternal love of God. It's foreign to her. How could I possibly look at God as a father when my father was an animal and a monster? And yet we're told that Jesus' favorite topic to discuss was the paternal love of God. And this dear sister can't relate to that. Some of us may not be able to relate to the topic of being pursued and loved and valued, The amazing thing is he does it nonetheless, and he, through the power of his word and his pursuit of our hearts through his Holy Spirit, is still able to bring us to a form of submission and a willingness to be open and vulnerable. And when we see when we're vulnerable, he doesn't reject us and push us away, but loves us even more strongly. It leads us to be willing to go where he's going. But he's willing to drop to one knee for people who've been harlots, who've left, To still pursue us, and we shall know him. And then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they shall say that you are my God. The walls of opposition and shame and fear and apprehension come down, and we find ourselves saying, Yeah, I'm willing to be yours if you'll be mine. I wouldn't be pursuing if that weren't the case. Of course. Will you say yes to my pursuit? This is the picture of God throughout the Old Testament. So what has to take place for this to become a reality? Like, how is God going to win her back? The very next chapter shows a price being paid to buy back an unfaithful woman. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus came, to buy back an unfaithful woman and to woo and draw her to himself. So you may not feel this evening like you deserve to be pursued, that you deserve to be loved. You're still loved, you're still pursued, and He can't take it back. He loves you just because, because that's how He does life. He can't turn that off. Remember, one of my Bible teachers, whenever I went to Arise, he mentioned something in one of his messages why on earth would God choose to believe in and pursue people who He knows good and well will not respond? That seems like nonsense. Why would God do that? This is what He said. What God knows doesn't change who He is. And love believes all things. It hopes all things. It bears all things. God literally believes all things and hopes all things about you, and He can't turn that off. That's just how he does life, and that's why Jesus did what he did, even though you've done what you've done. Because he sees a value in you that you don't see in you, and he keeps pursuing nonetheless. Keeps speaking love and belief in you nonetheless, and then he pays an infinite price, and the entire reason why Jesus is coming a second time is to bring you home. That's why not to come and surprise people and hope they're not ready and zap them. The whole point of the second coming is to bring you home, to deliver you from your pain, from your bondage, and from your brokenness. That's why Jesus is coming. And this is why the second coming should be good news to us, it Should cause our, our heart rates to increase. And this is why the people who still stood for Jesus after the disappointment in 1844 is what made it so beautiful. The only reason why someone would weep when Jesus didn't come, is because they had a love for Jesus in their hearts. It showed who truly loved God they were willing to give all. It meant the world to them, and it showed they had a true love for him because they were so disappointed. We are not capable of creating the type of love that God deserves or desires, and we have to admit that tonight. We just need to own that. So where does it come from? It comes from us first encountering his amazing love for us. And this is why he's the one making the first move, even though we fail and pursue other lovers. We love him because he first loved us. And this also leads to us to have a change in our desires and leads us to begin to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. It literally changes our lives. We'll actually talk about this tomorrow morning at Avent Hope. So the theme of Jesus coming as a husband to woo us in the New Testament It's actually found in the New Testament as well. This is not just an Old Testament theme, it's found in the New Testament. John the Baptist in John chapter 3 and verse 29 picks up on this. And I need to make hay here. John chapter 3 and verse 29. But this is making sense so far this evening. Okay, John chapter 3 and verse 29. John chapter 3 and verse 29. So disciples are coming to John the Baptist and saying, like, "Hey, people are following Jesus, like're kind of losing some followers here. They're baptizing people. Listen to what he says in verse 29. "He who has the bride is who." The bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears Him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. John literally understood that the whole reason Jesus is coming is as a husband seeking a bride. And I'm just the best man here to enjoy the show. It's not about me. It never has been, right? Just imagine how terrible it would be if the best man tries to make the wedding about him. What a disaster that would be. Can you imagine? Like, And so when he stands up and gives a speech, he just starts telling everyone how awesome he is. What a disaster. John understood this is not about me. My entire goal was to ensure that this wedding goes off without any difficulties. And when he gets together with her, my job is done. Yeah, I can step off the scene and let them enjoy this union that was the whole purpose of me being here. I'm a best man because a wedding is coming, not because I'm awesome. You with me? John understood this. And from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry... He has a marriage in mind from the very beginning. Jesus begins his ministry with a marriage in mind. John chapter, or Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27. I don't have time to go into this. It's really, really cool, but I just don't have time. So in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus offers the cup at the Last Supper to his disciples, he's actually using engagement language. What would happen when the young man saw a young woman that he liked, he talks to his parents, they talk to her parents, they get together, they have a feast And what he does is he pours, there's grape juice at this table, and he pours grape juice in the cup, and he takes a drink himself, and he offers it to the girl. And if the girl takes a drink, she's saying yes to the proposal. I'm in, I'm interested. And then he begins a process, which is amazing, because the, the, the whole purpose of communion is actually an engagement. When Jesus offers this to the disciples and they had this feast of celebration, the whole point of the Passover and this particular Lord's Supper was Jesus offering a cup of a covenant, a marriage covenant. Him offering to be their righteousness, Him offering to love them in faithfulness and in truth, and Him offering to transform their lives. That's the whole purpose of that. And so then what begins to happen, according to John chapter 14, this is what He tells her. After she says yes, go to John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This language is all from a first century Jewish wedding mindset. John chapter 1, 14, beginning in verse 1. You've heard this verse, I'm sure. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. It's actually rooms, not mansions, it's rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's just, in, he's just given the proposal. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Literally, when he offers that cup and she drinks, the very next thing he says is, I have to leave you. But I'm leaving for a purpose. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what he did is he would go back to his father's house and he would build a room in addition onto his father's house. And he does not, he can't follow on Facebook and and, and see her cheerleading for him. I'm rooting for you, boo. I'm hoping you do a good job. Make me that, make a house pretty for me. He does not see her. He does not talk to her. He, every single brick this guy lays is him committing to this girl. Everything he's doing, he doesn't see her, she doesn't see him, she goes home and her mother prepares her to be a wife. She teaches her how to manage a home and prepare her for her responsibilities, and this is what God ends up doing, or this is what Jesus is is painting as a picture here, that when Jesus offers the cup in John chapter 13, now in John chapter 14, he's telling the disciples, look, I have to leave, but I'm coming back. I mean, the only reason I'm leaving is not because I don't love you or I have something else in mind. I've gotta make a place for you. I'm actually gonna talk about this tomorrow morning, but I gotta make a place for you. What that actually looks like in a tangible way and how he changes our lives. And so he goes and he builds, and he is not allowed to, to like walk and go get this girl until his own father approves the fact that this house is worthy, that this room is worthy. It's good enough for your wife. I deem it good enough, now you can go get her. This is why there's the parable, the virgins, where they go out to meet the bridegroom. Because if this guy finishes his house in the middle of the night, you think he's going to wait till the next morning? He's been building, he cannot get married until he finishes a house. Can't do it. Can you imagine if that was the case today? Right? It had to be clear before the marriage that this guy's committed. Yeah, some of us are scared to death. I'm never going to be married, I'll be a eunuch. (laughs) I'll be a eunuch. So, like, this, this is a situation, like, it had to be clear that he was committed. That's what their culture taught and how it worked. It was evident he was committed because he went and built a house. She may not wait on him. The way she waited is she put a lamp in the windowsill. And if he leaves in the middle of the night and the, and his, his, the virgin cousins lead him back there, and they've got oil in their lamps, if that lamp is still lit in the windowsill, he knows she's waiting on me. She still decided to wait. She still decided to commit herself to me. She didn't give her heart to another. And they get married like then. No messing around, no playing games. They got married that night. We'll come back to some of these other thoughts. So Jesus literally ties matrimonial language to the second coming. He himself is building rooms for us. And again, tomorrow morning I'll deal with that. Shameless plug for Advent Hope tomorrow morning. At what time? I don't even know because I don't go to church here. Christine and Ryan, help me. What time? Nine Nine o'clock. And then, yeah. So, I Sabbath School, 10 a.m. main program. 10 a.m. main program, if all those fails, but you should be at Sabbath School. Okay, so this teaches something of great importance then. The topic of commitment, right? This guy's not messing around. When he finds a girl that he likes, he's not thinking, oh, man, like, I'm just going to say the right things. I'm going to win her, and she's mine. Like, no, 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 Like, once she agrees that she's open to the premise and she's not going to give her heart to another, dude leaves and goes and builds a house with his own bare hands by himself. No one helps him. He builds his house by himself, showing he's committed. And every brick this guy lays and every splinter he gets, every time he smashes his thumb with a hammer, every ounce of pain and sweat that he goes through, Is a payment he can give her when he says, I do. I'm committed to you for the rest of my life. I didn't go through all this hardship and difficulty to choose to leave later. I'm in it to win it, girl. I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. And she understood this, and her parents understood this. And that's the point that was made. He didn't get to see her, but what motivated him was being able to have her as his own at the end of the day, that she could be with him where he was. That's what kept him going. And that's what kept her going. He's waiting on me. He's building something for me. He cares about me. He values me. That's why he's not back yet. He's working hard. He's doing a good job. He can't go to her until his father says that the house is good enough. And he has no idea how long that's going to take. He doesn't know. And this is precisely why Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. Isn't this amazing? The very language that Jesus uses to the disciples is he has to excuse himself for the work that's ahead of him. He's using matrimonial language. He's head over heels in love with you. And the reason why he hasn't come back yet is because he's preparing a place for you, but you better believe he will come back because he sees something in you that even you don't see in you. And this is why He woos you, why He speaks love into your experience, love into your brokenness, into your loneliness and discouragement and rejection. This is why the gospel continually speaks value into your experience. Because He wants that lamp burning in your windowsill. He doesn't want to come back and see a dark window. I desire that they might be with me where I am. He wants you to be there. Friend of mine was preaching on this very thing, really opened my eyes to this. His name's Sebastian. And he tells the story of at his bachelor party, he's about to get married. And it's a sanctified bachelor party, no nonsense, right? And so all of his buddies are going to they kind of give this advice and a prayer for him. And he said it took forever because these guys just grilled me like they knew about more about my ugliness than I knew. So these guys are all giving advice, but one of his friends says this. He says, Sebastian, my prayer for you is that after you get married and the flame of romance has died, that it will always be able to be rekindled as long as you maintain the embers of commitment. In our experience in a marriage and in our experience with Jesus, there are times when that fire of romance is going to die. And we just got to own that. That's just the truth. If you're assuming that you're going to be happy at the zenith of happiness from day one until Jesus comes, you are gravely mistaken. And it's not because marriage is a disaster and is bad. This is just part of the process. There are times when the flame of romance dies. But even if the flame itself dies, there are embers that can be used to start another fire. Are you with me? And those embers come from your commitment. You committed to this thing, right? You're building a house with your own bare hands. You're in this thing to win it. You're building a house for your wife, if you will. And this is what can keep you, that whenever, you're, whenever you get married and the flame of romance has died, that it will always be able to be rekindled as long as you decide to maintain the embers of commitment. This is what he says. If we get into a relationship, but the groundwork for commitment has not been laid, we're setting ourselves up for failure. And so when someone is pursuing your interest, but you don't get this sense of commitment, it doesn't matter how sweet they talk, how smooth they talk, you're going to end up miserable. Now, I'm not saying that that guy's going to have to go build a house for you before you guys start dating. I'm not saying that, but there's a lot of lessons that can be learned here. Yeah. Some practical lessons. Am I willing to go through that process of building my own house to ensure that I'm ready for such a commitment? Not just, he better get his act together. What are you going to be doing? (laughs) Right? We both have a role to play. She went home and learned how to be a wife. He went home and built a house. So we need to make sure that we're both focused in this because our culture doesn't cause us to focus on commitment. It causes us to focus on romance. But when the fire of romance dies, what are you going to do? What will you do? Only the embers of commitment can bring that back. This is what we should be looking for in our own marital preparations, but also in our own hearts. Am I committed to this thing to death? Am I making a so help me God till death to us part commitment to Jesus? Am I willing to do that? And he makes this illustration in the sermon, what if they made you do that when you accepted Christ? They have a wedding ceremony. Everyone gets dressed up and the whole church is there supporting you in this decision, but the community also brought accountability right? You're committing till death to us part for better or for worse. That means when stuff gets difficult, when it gets trying, that you don't bail, right? And Sebastian makes this point, like, no, you don't understand, brother, like, things are really difficult. He says, yeah, things just got worse. You said for better or for worse, it just got worse. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to bail, right? Or are you going to stand for this thing? This is kind of the point that. We're looking at our marriage commitment, but we need to make sure that our road towards marriage as a single person is paved with tests of commitment, he says. Otherwise, we're going to find out in our marriage that we weren't ready. And in a Jewish culture, they found out before you were married if you were committed. He knew that what it was like to prepare for a relationship. And the same thing for the woman, and he gets no affirmation as he built for her. None. It's the embers of commitment that keep this guy building when it's difficult, when it's hard, when he doesn't feel like it. It's raining. I'd rather do something else. I gave my vow. I want her in my life. I'm going to do it. And our faith relationship can be very similar to this. He closes with this thought. He just kept building with her in mind. How would she view the house when he brought her there? This is what motivates him. All he had was her word that she would not give her affection to another, and all she had was his word that he was was going to prepare a place. And they were committed even though they could have done something else. Someone else could have come along the way, but he was committed, man. He saw what he wanted. So here's the point. Love should be the motivation of our preparation for the second coming of Jesus, and true love and commitment should be our preparation for marriage. The preparation is very similar. Full-on commitment and love, and an unselfish agape love. that we can't, rec- we can't create that, but we can receive that by first encountering His love. Amen? This is what God wants for us. And love, true love, is committed. I'll give you some of my own story on how I'm kind of piecing these things together. I'd listened to this, this message, and then I got a phone call about a month and a half ago that was devastating. Just this terrible disappointment that made no sense to me. Like, everything that God was doing to lead me was moving in one direction. Couldn't understand all of what was going on. But in this moment of discouragement and disappointment, I learned some lessons. I'm going to cover tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m. at Cutler. Shameless plug. Uh, Because I don't have time to cover it right now. But it's an amazing thing that in the midst of that disappointment and discouragement, I found myself learning to pray in desperation and to dig deeper and to search my own motives and heart in that situation in ways that I'm so grateful for. That, that what I was praying for was happening now twice a day instead of once a day. And I found myself learning to pray with a fervency that I had lost in the midst of my discouragement and depression and difficulty in ministry. Kind of forgot where I came from. Right? Went through a moment of darkness and discouragement, and I learned something through this. And one of the things that got me through this situation was running. And I don't mean like running away from the situation. I mean like actually going for runs to take care of my body, right? And it was one of those like Forrest Gump moments where like I just got to run and I'm just going to run until I can't, right? I just got to get this out of my system. Like I just got to go. And someone in this room was a physical therapist and, and blessed me with advice on things to do to kind of fix things. I was a total dirtbag and didn't do my physical therapy because I didn't have enough time in the day, I thought. But I did follow the counsel I was given regarding my posture when I ran. And the injury that I had developed over time hasn't bothered me, really. Praise the Lord. And I value their time and effort, even though I didn't fully do as I should have done. And I apologize publicly. (laughs) To Ryan Dolinsky. I'm sorry. But... He did offer me what I needed, videos, stretchy bands, all kinds of stuff. I just stunk at life and didn't do it, but I changed my posture, and so I was getting up to the point of running like three miles, then maybe four miles, but after this situation happened, I literally just had to run until I couldn't, and I ran for five miles that day. Like, I just ran, and, and I knew I could have gone farther. Like, my body felt like I could, but my ligaments aren't ready for that, and I didn't want to hurt myself again, That's how I hurt myself the first time. I was smart enough to know that few days go by, and I literally go and run for seven miles. I've never run that far in my life. Like, I'm, I'm built like someone who should be able to run forever, but I hate running. <laughs> but the crazy thing is, like, this situation has actually caused me to love the thing that I hated that has actually prepared me for what I need to be doing. Running has been a great exercise for me of learning to crucify my flesh, right? It hurts. You don't want to keep going. And it just kind of trains you to dig deeper and do what needs to be done, whether you feel like it or not and I'm finding myself twice a week getting out and pounding that pavement, whether it's in the rain in Alabama last week. I ran five miles in the rain last week, and I actually loved it. I've fallen in love with it. It's been like my grief counselor. Like, I can just go. I don't even listen to anything. I just go, and I just run, and it's been so good for me to just clear my mind, and it helped me go through that process of doing what I need to do for my own health and for my recovery, right? Coming out of depression is no joke, and like, Recovery is a lifestyle, not a one-time decision. And when you're wrestling with addictions or stuff like that, like with depression, lifestyle, it's a, it's a re- recovery is a lifestyle. It takes a commitment, and this is teaching me something about that, about commitment. And as I'm on that seven-mile run, which I've never done in my life, this thought comes into my mind. What are you doing right now? Like, this is a thought, like, what are you doing right now, D? And here's the immediate thought that came into my mind after hearing that message from my friend, Sebastian. I'm building a house for my wife. I'm doing what I need to do to take care of myself, right? As an object lesson, building a house for my wife. I'm not married, I'm not engaged. The point was, like... I'm, I'm investing in commitment right now with my relationship with Jesus and doing the things I need to do for my recovery. I'm choosing to exercise my will to do what needs to be done, even though it's hard. Even though what I'd rather do is, is, is you know, weep and mourn and do something else, I'm making a choice. I'm gonna build a house for my wife. This is what God has called me to do. I need to take care of myself, right? I need to value my mind and my body. And it was such a valuable lesson for me. And I find myself, when I'm waking up and I choose to pray, and I choose to pray in the evening, or choose to do something else, what I'm doing in that moment is choosing to build a house for my wife. When I make that decision to get involved in service, when I don't feel like it, telling someone about the beautiful promise of Jesus' the second coming, in that moment, I'm building a house for my wife. Are you with me this evening? And each of us had those convictions that God has laid upon our hearts. Those things that we need to be dealing with, the things that we need to do, choosing to deal with recovery. Maybe some of us are in a dark place right now. We're dealing with addictions or other things. Maybe the way that you can start building a house for your wife is by bringing those things to Jesus and seeking help. Each of us have those decisions we need to make. But I'm choosing to make that because I don't want to keep living as I've been living. And Jesus deserves better than I've given him. And if I actually believe Jesus is coming soon, I need to make a decision to commit right now, not later. And so I'm making those choices by the grace of God, little step by little step by little step. And the amazing thing is something that I used to hate, I now love and enjoy. It's actually been healing and a delight to me. And I believe God can do that for us. If we're willing to do the things that need to be done, sometimes we're afraid of them or avoid them because it hurts. It it doesn't really feel all that good. He can actually change your desires. But it's those embers of commitment that give us the ability to rekindle that fire when it gets dark, when it gets discouraging and difficult. Amen? All right. Jesus, in John chapter 17, prayed to the Father. These are his last words to the disciples. And in John chapter 17, Jesus literally prays for you. Did you know that? Jesus prayed for you. And Jesus, in his prayer for you, says, Father, I desire. Not just, I think it would be kind of cool. It would be kind of nice. He says, I desire, the fervent desire of my heart, is that they might be with me where I am." Who's the they? The people he passed that cup to. I want them with me. Jesus wants you with him. I desire that they might be with me where I am, he says in John chapter 17. And then when Jesus is resurrected after his crucifixion and death, We're told that he literally presses into the presence of the... Well, the angels erupt in praise. You've never seen a worship service like this. The angels lose their minds in praise because Jesus is conqueror, because it is finished. And Jesus literally looks at the angels and says, no, no. And he presses into the presence of the Father. And there's one question on the heart and mind of Jesus was it enough? Are you happy with the house that I've built? Is it good enough? Can those whom you've given me be with me where I am? And the Father says, yes. Jesus was committed. Jesus was committed to the degree that he's willing to shed blood suffer and die for people that seemingly do not appreciate or care. It hurt to build that house. The first one. There's a second one he's working on now, just as an object lesson. It hurt him to do this. But he had to know, did what I do, was it enough? And the father says yes. But here's the difficulty. Have you said yes? Is it enough For you. Is there still a lamp waiting in your windowsill? Jesus began his ministry and ended his ministry with an emphasis on his pursuit of his bride. He had a wedding in mind. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, the second coming is communicated as a wedding. It's all throughout Scripture. He's head over heels in love with you. He desires that you might be with him where he is. But here's the thing that makes it the most difficult, I think, in the eyes of Jesus. And Sebastian brings this out in his sermon. Imagine, you go through all this painstaking effort. And you build this house, who knows how long it took, with your own bare hands, smashed fingers, all kinds of stuff, and you're done. And your dad says, it's good enough. And as you go through the middle of the night and you get to that house, the windowsill is dark. Just imagine, you proved your commitment. You held up your end of the deal. You gave everything, man. Everything you had, and you built that thing by yourself. No one helped you. You did it by yourself. And you find out that she's given her affections to someone else. How would you feel in that moment? And yet Jesus is going to have to see this at the second coming. Jesus is acquainted with a heartbreak that you and I cannot imagine. And many of us have this unhealthy view of the second coming because of the way this communicated. You communicated. Know, no one knows when he's coming. It's going to be a surprise. And so we think that Jesus is just going to jump from behind the shower curtain and say, Boop! and and if people are ready they're going if they're not too bad and he's going to take delight in dealing with those people and firmly that's not the arc narrative of scripture he's been wooing he's been pursuing and he's been proving his commitment day after day after day and when he comes on that day to receive what he was told he would receive i'm not giving my affections to another I choose you. I agree. I'm drinking the cup. And he comes back, and our, limps, our lamps are not trimmed and burning. That romance, that fire of romance died. And with that death, even came the death of the embers of commitment. I'm not there anymore. I'm just not feeling it. Jesus, got other priorities. Got other things I want to do. And he's going to come back for the bride that he paid for and made a way for and chose to forgive, to believe in, and pursue. He's going to be devastated. But he doesn't have to be. Amen. I don't know how many people are in this room this evening. But he wants to see that lamp trimmed and burning not because he's looking for ways to keep you out and just hopes you're kind of good enough at the end of the day. The beautiful promise of the gospel is that he's good enough. Will you receive it? We're going to talk about that tomorrow morning. He's good enough. Will you receive it? But where's your commitment tonight? Have you been building a house for your wife at this stage in your life? And if not, what better time to start than now if there's someone who thinks that highly of me in spite of what i've done to him how i've spurned and rejected him the least thing i can do is keep that lamp burning the least thing i can do is be open to the fact that i could be loved i am loved i am accepted i am pursued I am believed in and valued. But will you respond this evening? That's the question. So I have to know this evening, has this made sense, first of all? Yes or no? Jesus is head over heels in love with you and he's coming to bring you home. What he's making for you is better than you would ask for yourself. I guarantee you this. Guaranteed. But are those embers still going in our experience? And if not you can find fire from the very flame of Yahweh tonight. You can respond to his love in you and his love towards you. You can love him because he first loved you. And we can start afresh tonight. We can say yes tonight and we can choose to commit. Amen. That's what he's asking. And it's a commitment worth making. The benefits are out of this world, pun intended, right? He valued you. Else he would not have come on such an expensive errand to redeem you. Jesus believes in you. He values you. Will you respond tonight? That's the question. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you that you see things in me that I don't see in me. You see things in these people here that they don't see in themselves, and you're asking if we'll respond. You're approaching us on one knee, and Lord, you're asking us to no longer view you as our master, but to view view you as our husband, as the love of our lives, who's always done what's in our best interest, who's always chosen to believe in us, even though we've been unbelievable who's chosen to love us even though we've been unlovable. And, Lord, I pray that each of us would come into harmony with your view of us, that we would see ourselves as you see us. And, Lord, that those lamps would be trimmed and burning, that we would be willing to build a house for our wife, to commit to that process, trusting that he who promises faithful, and he will do it. Forgive our sins of unbelief, of disqualifying ourselves, of not valuing the value that you place upon us, and not valuing you. And I pray that you would chase us down like you did that harlot in Hosea, and that you would woo us, that you would speak love and comfort to us, and that we would find our hearts strangely warmed, and that a reciprocating love would be found in our hearts for the one who's been pursuing us all along. This is our plea tonight, Lord. We ask this now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org